That was a section of Sweet for DSW from drummer Whit Dickey's new album, Tau Quartets. The band on that track is Rob Brown on alto sax, Matthew Shipp on piano, and William Parker on bass. And Whit Dickey is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Freeman, and welcome to the Burning Ambulance podcast, which is part of the Osiris Network. Visit the Osiris page on jambase.com to check out all of our other shows. There are about 30 of them at this point on all sorts of subjects, and the network is growing all the time, so I'm sure there are at least one or two others that will be of interest to you as well. If you enjoy this podcast, I hope you'll consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us to create more and better content on the website burningambulance.com and for this podcast, so please become a subscriber if you can. This episode is sponsored by Nugs.net, which is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like The New Deal, The Infamous String Dusters, and Yonder Mountain String Band, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or one from 40 years ago. The New Deal are a trio from Canada, keyboards, bass, and drums. They play live electronic music that's like a combination of old-school techno, jazz, fusion, and jam band stuff. I remember listening to one of their albums almost 20 years ago, and I was surprised to see that they were still around and had a bunch of shows available from 2009 through 2017. So maybe check them out if that sounds interesting to you. 
Nugs.net is available on desktop, iOS and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us, the folks who run it are live music fanatics, so they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to nugs.net slash burningambulance and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, nugs.net slash burningambulance for 35% off an annual subscription. Whit Dickey uh, is a guy whose name should be familiar to any fan of free jazz. He was a member of saxophonist David S. Ware's quartet in the mid-90s, playing on albums like Third Ear Recitation, Earthquasion, Cryptology, and Tao. At the same time, he was a member of Matthew Shipp's group with William Parker. They made trio albums and also recorded with guitarist Joe Morris and violinist Matt Maneri. In the late 90s and early 2000s, he would disappear off the scene for a couple of years at a time, for reasons he'll explain in this interview, but every time he came back, he was making really interesting music. His style is very free, with little or no concern for conventional timekeeping, but he never distracts from the music, in the sense that it always has a central flow, it's always going somewhere. He rejoined Matt Ship's trio in about 2006 and stuck around till about 2014 or so, and also became one of saxophonist Evo Perlman's pool of collaborators starting in about 2011. So at this point, he's got a pretty deep catalog of recordings under his own name and also accompanying some incredible players. We talk about a lot of that music in this interview, as well as about his early life and how he came to the drums. Um, I did not know until I spoke to him that he had studied with people like Bill Dixon, Andrew Cyril, and Milford Graves, but what he's got to say about all of them is fascinating, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's a long one, but very much worth hearing. I'm going to play another piece of music now. This is a section of Soaring from Drone Dream, a duo album by Whit Dickey and Kirk Kanufke. And after that, you'll hear my interview with Whit Dickey.
Let's start at the beginning. Uh, where are you from originally? Well, I basically, from six age, I grew up in um, Bennington, Vermont. Mm -hmm. And um, I, then I, I uh, moved when I was 18 to school, you know, and then my parents moved also. But, um, you know, I went, I went to... Uh, school out college out in montana oh really yeah oh wow okay yeah. what was that like well it was interesting because my, i didn't know what i wanted to do because i you know i basically got sort of went a grade ahead because i got kicked out of uh, prep school and so I, I, I stayed back to go to prep school, and then I jumped ahead once I got kicked out. Didn't know what I wanted to do. My mom had been out to uh, California with us and her cousins, and so a cousin recommended University of Montana's program called Round River Experiment, funded by the Ford Foundation, which was basically an experimental um, questioning America's values, questioning America's political systems. And this was in 1970, you know, two, I guess. So, um, you know, I basically just took took a year of uh, co college core credits, mm -hmm. and and uh, basically just went through this this uh, kind of an alt alt education um, where we we were four groups. We uh, there were four groups of us, and each one was uh, headed by a college professor who had, you know, who was in this experimental program. Mm. It's kind of complex, but it was it was really an interesting thing for me. I met my, you know, some good friends there, and it changed my head around. I was, you know, I grew up uh, in in a family that really expected me to follow in my father's footsteps and he's a banker mm. and um you know my father expected me to do that and um my mother and my father always had different ideas about me so my mother sort of looked into this, this you know a way for me to go to college because i had no no way of getting into any colleges so yeah. This yeah. was just a way to go to college, and uh, you know, it, from there, um, you know, I, I took another year at the uh, University of Montana. I just jumped around. I didn't know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I was very, very uh, unsure, but I knew that I want. I didn't want to do anything that had to do with uh, with nine to five work and or anything to do with um you know working as a uh, uh just work i mean I, I have to say that you know when i was at montana and later on i just i just was 
taking courses and not knowing what I wanted to do. And then, you know, I started to, I dropped out of school and, um, you know, it was basically living, <laughs> to be honest, I was living, living off of an income that family income and um, just uh, you know uh, studying like um, dropping out of school and studying basically starting to study uh, black music because I was always had a really huge record collection and I you know listened to a lot of 45s when I was young and just I was always listening to music, and so I started studying um, uh, jazz and black culture. Mm. So and when did you? Uh, is that around the time that you started playing drums, or? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I started playing drums when I was 22, but I didn't really take it seriously until I was. I mean, I I learned more about the music. Um, and about black culture and I read every jazz book that I could find and I read every jazz periodical that I could find you know I was really into the whole culture and and then um, I uh, started saying you know I really love Sonny Murray and um, that that Sonny Murray with Cecil and Jimmy Lyons on the Montmartre recording, mm-hmm. and I remember hearing that, and I was just going, "Wow, this this is something that will definitely take me in a different direction than my family, and will uh, I'll I'll find freedom here, and um, I'll find affirmation here if I if I do this." But I didn't realize how hard it was to get there, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you were I, always you never like started out as a rock drummer and then had like no. a conversion or anything. It was always no. it was always free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't realize, you know, I, I was such a rebel that I didn't realize how hard it would be to get to that air to get to where I could actually do what what I wanted to do. So it was it was a struggle. Yeah. You know. and, and I developed I developed physical injuries to my leg because I had a ski accident when I was young, so I had all sorts of issues that were di- making it difficult for me. But I, I just stuck with it and, and got help when I needed it. And anyway, you can ask the next question. Who did you? Uh, I mean, who did you study with? Did you study well, with more I traditional studied, drummers, or did you? I studied with people, but I didn't study. For a long time like I moved to New York in 79 and uh, and then I I, I lived in a, an artist building for a while um, and I studied with uh, Andrew Surreal oh wow but, yeah he had an ad in the voice and so I um, I said well why not study with him you know he gave me all sorts of uh books and uh, songs to uh, play to and you know it was interesting but I never I, I did get some things from him a pyramid of rhythms and, you know just um, some some very interesting things but um, I, 
I developed, to be honest, I developed leg problems where I couldn't play for a while. Uh, yeah. yeah. What's interesting about Surreal is that, like, although he's done all this free work, he's also a very, he's very tied into, like, parade rhythms and that kind yeah. of, you know, the rudiments type of stuff the same way Billy yeah. Cobham is you know he's a very yeah. precise drummer so I would I would right. I would imagine that that would be something that would really you know yeah. be important to kind of pick yeah. up on yeah it was you know um, well he's uh, you know he's somebody that I somebody that I've always really admired you know I mean the way he plays on um, the records with Cecil um, is is very very amazing in the way he uses clave clave on the drum and is able to play precise rhythms on the the, the rim of the drum during a lot of uh, that, that that album um, Conquistador the mm. first cut and just so I admire him but. He's not somebody that's an influence, but he's—he's. He's, I really admire his playing. Yeah. Well, there's always that. There's that blurry zone between like influence and inspiration. Like there's people that you steal stuff from, and then there's people that you hear, and it makes you want to do your own thing better. Yeah. You know, that's that's kind of the way I feel because there are writers that I love who I don't steal ideas from, but they make me want to be better at what I'm doing you know yeah but yeah, uh, exactly. but what what do you think is sort of the key to your style like yeah. what sets you apart in the way that you can tell like Blakey from Elvin Jones from Billy Cobham well, like what's your particular thing yeah my particular thing is um, right now if you want to know, you know is is that I uh I definitely have been influenced by Professor Milford Graves because I went to Bennington College and that's where I got my BA and I studied with him in the black music department at Bennington and you know I learned how to play African rhythms on the drums and uh, I studied 12-8 various you know a lot just studying the way different ways of playing 12 8 and um so what i what i get what i get is this trying to you know basically trying to play jazz after having studied with milford and um, i developed a heartbeat the idea of when i hear music immediately the first thing I hear is a heartbeat and so if it's free you know I will hear you know a a heartbeat which I've turned into a um, mantra of sort and I, I would say that what sets me apart is that I whenever I hear melody I hear a heartbeat so I'm a melodic drummer very melodic and so whenever I don't think about a rhythm per se that I'm going to play, I don't think of anything like that. Basically in terms of hearing that heartbeat 
and then hearing how that heartbeat fits into a rhythm that's essential and it's very similar to what Elvin Jones played the bum bum the bum bum the bum 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 the bum 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 the bum 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 you know like heavy on the you know the dan dan the way every I'm not well schooled in music so I don't have it but it's I I think I think what I do is I is I is I I work with melody and I can work around what other people are doing so that the heartbeat leads me into what other people are doing and, and then I can extend the heartbeat into jazz so that I'm aware of the jazz thing that's happening but I'm playing the heartbeat so I'm aware of two things I'm aware of the jazz bum bum and then I'm also aware of the heartbeat that leads you into that mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm basically dealing with two things, the yin and the yang. And um, that's why I'm, I've come to believe in the Tao so heavily, because I, I just truly believe that there's, you know, there's, there's, there's creation and there is no... You know, there's there's basically what you're dealing with is the heartbeat and the the jazz um, um, outcome out yeah. of that heartbeat. And I'm aware of two things at once while I'm playing. So it's basically I can play jazz with Matt say or Rob, but I. I or you know, but I don't. I don't necessarily do that. I imply it. It's there, and it's it's very important to me. This is where I'm at now, mm. and so it's just a really rich, you know, very rich inner system that produces, you know, music which is really. I think sets me apart. It's different. Um, yeah. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a technical wizard. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I don't. Yeah. I'm curious about your relationship with Rob Brown because he seems to be one of the crucial musical relationships of your life. So, yeah. like, what do you get from him as a player, and what does he want from you, and what is the sort of exchange that you guys have going on? Because you've worked with him, yeah. like, for 20-some years. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, Rob is somebody that is, you know, he's one, I'd say he's, he's a singular in that he he doesn't really have any kind of um, he doesn't really have any kind of like heavy agenda he, he just plays I mean he, he doesn't he doesn't talk about his playing that much he doesn't doesn't really um, he, he just has this ability to rise to the occasion and, and whatever you're doing he's going to play right on what you're doing he's, he's amazing in that way I don't know where he gets it, 
could be genius of a sort, but, and that can be hard to explain. But yeah, what I love about him is that he is totally uh, plays off of the melody that you give him or plays off of the rhythm that you give him. And it's like when you're playing tennis and you hit a hard shot to somebody and he always gets it back. And it's kind of like we used to play tennis together and, um, you know, I would I would be hitting these really hard shots at him and he always got them back and, and he always, you know, and then he would he usually win the point. You know, I, I, I just feel like he's, um, when I play with him now, um, he's really, he, he's, he's just, he builds, he builds like he'll start off with something and he'll build off of it. And he really, I guess he really responds to my playing. You know, I think he, I think he plays as well as ever when he plays with me because I, I just think I give him lots of options. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, he, we've been playing together for, you know, since 1988 or something. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like he he has lots of options and he takes advantage of it and he plays in totally different situations you know and he plays really beautifully you know with the in order to survive band and um, which is which is basically got a lot of backbeat to it but um, you know, with me, I, I don't provide, I, I provide open-ended playing. My playing is very, very open-ended. And um, I think I think he thrives on that, so. Yeah, yeah. I know, I'm sure a lot of people know you best because of, like, the five albums that you made with David Ware. So I'm curious what your relationship with him was like because... The only members of that group to come and go were the drummers. So, yeah. what was his deal with drummers? Uh, you know, and and also, I mean, he was like one of the nicest people, but I always found him intimidating in a way in person. So, I'm curious what your relationship was with him and what your musical relationship with him right. was. Well, I got, I, I, I know that he met. Um, Matthew in 87 and um, Matthew and me were working together a whole lot during that period during like 89 I guess and he was in the band The Great Bliss Project uh, and um, you know I, I, I feel like uh, uh, that, uh, that that you know that Mark Edwards was 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 a, was not working for Matthew at all, and, and David prized Matthew. Just thought him of him as being the perfect, you know, uh, complimentary complimentary aspect to his um, to his playing. Now, I got hired because Matthew and and myself 
together made an album, Circular Temple, and he heard that, and he and Matthew was having trouble with Mark Edwards, and um, so he said, well, why don't why don't we hire Wit? So, you know, I had a place in Brooklyn that allowed us to practice and rehearse. And so we would we would come over. He came over there with Matthew and William, and we we would go through the tunes. And uh, you know, I I was really just not well versed in playing um, right on the melodies. He didn't bother me about that first. And we we just rehearsed and we made some nice music. I think you know I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I I I, I just because I just never really played. I never studied playing 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 bebop tunes and playing on jazz, mm-hmm. playing right on the tunes and all that. And you really have to in order to play with uh, somebody like David. To be honest, yeah, because he had those like sort of mantra-like melodies that he would use, and it was you yeah. know there was all this freedom in between, but he was very focused on making sure that that melody got in yeah. there. Exactly, and I I feel like that when I was playing with him, that the melody was always important, and but I wasn't really touching on his melodies as much as he wanted. And you know, it took what four or five albums, um, and they're all, you know, nice records. I think that there's a lot of things that people like about those records, but I didn't really feel as though I was um, contributing to what David wanted. And I felt I felt it from him um, as time went on, more and more as we toured, more and more. So my feeling with David was that you know I had a good personal relationship with him, but. The musical problems were there. Um, you know, I just think that David couldn't find a drummer that he that there was always something missing. You know, with David, you know, he always there was always something that he wanted from drums. And I guess he studied with Bieber Harris and learned a lot of rhythm rhythmic concepts from Bieber. And of course, he studied with Sonny Rollins and. Jesus, I mean, so he's really reversed, and he can play. He can play out of the real book, you know, just by sight, you know, anything there. And I mean, he's he's just he's he's amazing. I don't think people knew how brilliant he really is. And I think I think he's I think he could have, if he lived longer, could have, you know, didn't have this kidney problem. He could, you know, become one of the great great. Um, and he already is considered by many to be one of the most important players in, in the uh, free music, so to speak. Yeah. You know. Uh, it's funny, too, I, because Susie, who was the next drummer after you in yeah. that group, is just as sort of abstract as you are, yeah, rhythmically. So yeah, it's yeah. like, I don't think yeah. he really got what he was after until no, like he later did. when he worked with Guillermo, who was more of a, yeah, a heavy yeah. beat-driven drummer, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think with Guillermo, Guillermo had problems with him, too, man. They just fought tooth and nails. I mean, <laughs> what I understand. So, you know, but Guillermo at least played like really on the beats and it, 
David was able to, you know, put out records that, you know, Columbia produced and surrendered and, um, yeah, I don't know. You know, these were all, these were all records that, that, you know, I, I went and saw that band and, you know, I was really into that band with, uh, with, with, uh, Guillermo and, um, but, but Guillermo had problems because, um, he, I don't know what exactly Guillermo's problem, but David's problem with Guillermo was, but uh, there were problems. I know that, and they were fighting a lot. <laughs> Which uh, do you have a record that you think is your best work with that quartet? Uh, probably Cryptology, mm -hmm. or you know, um, I just felt the most comfortable on that record. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That was a section of Ethereality from the second disc of Tau Quartets by Whit Dickey, who is my guest on this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. The band there was Rob Brown on alto sax again, Steve Swell on trombone, and Michael Bizio on bass. 
This episode is being sponsored by Nugs.net, which is the destination for live music on demand. They have a growing collection of over 15,000 full-length concert recordings from bands like Wilco, Dead & Company, and Pearl Jam, so you'll never run out of live music to explore. You can listen to a show from last night or from 40 years ago. It's a great way to explore shows by bands you've seen or bands you never saw. I've been digging into their vast catalog, I mean like hundreds of shows, going all the way back to the 80s of Metallica concerts myself. It's available on desktop, iOS and Android apps, Sonos, and Blue OS. Just like us, the folks at Nugs.net are live music fanatics, so they're offering new subscribers a 35% discount on an annual subscription. Go to Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance and sign up today. If you already have a subscription, give the gift of live music to a friend. Again, Nugs.net slash Burning Ambulance for 35% off an annual subscription. And now, here's the rest of my conversation with Whit Dickey. And you, at the same time, you, Matthew, and William also did a lot of other work, like as Matt's trio or as different quartets, like with Joe Morris or Matt Maneri in there. So was that more comfortable in a way? Because, you know, there wasn't that focus on the the sort of melodic hooks that David wanted to lay down? Yeah, it was easier for me um, because... Because Matthew played music that was tailored toward me, a la Duke Ellington. He would he would write music or compose music in his mind that worked around what I did. And so we you know we did albums like Prism and uh, you know Circular Temple was nice. Well, there was um. You know, there's, there's, uh, let me see the other albums that I did. And then with, with Matt Maneri and, uh, and, um, Matthew, um. Yeah, there were two, the two quartet yeah. albums. Yeah. Yeah. So. That's right. After you left, uh, the Ware Quartet, you also, did you also move out of New York around that time? Like late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. It was and, a mistake, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> where did you Where did you go? And did you continue making up, music, or did you just kind of drift away? The sticks. I went up into the sticks, about eighty miles north of New York, and um, lived in this little house, this dirt road, and uh, just started working on making music on my own, um, with in, you know, living in nature. And um, you know, having a dog and all, and just walking a lot, thinking it was there was a lot of land around where I lived. You know, I, I it was really an interesting area. It was right on the Connecticut border, uh-huh. and up in an area called Quaker Hill, which is up on a hill above uh, Pauling, New York, to the east, and it it was just an interesting time for me but it was a mistake I mean I should have stayed in New York because um, I would have gotten more I would have been more with more people but I did I just I was so I was so I was so put out um, I did a record of my own transonic and then I moved out and I worked hard on that record 
And I did it with Chris Lightcap and Rob Brown. Yeah, Lightcap is an interesting choice. I wanted to ask you yeah. about him because he's not really involved in the no, sort of Vision no. Festival free scene yeah. that you kind of came out of. Yeah. He's right. You know, he's more yeah. of a mainstream but a very, but guy. He, he but, was, but he was a very young cat back then, and um, Rob had been working with him. So Rob said, "Why don't you? Why don't we use Chris Lightcap?" And I I worked with Chris, and he was he was really you know, very professional, um, very able to play what, uh, I, I remember, uh, that, that, uh, you know, that he, he played great on it. Um, and, uh, but I don't, you know, then of course he chose directions that were different yeah. than mine. But you, you worked with him a couple more times in the early yeah, 2000s. Yeah, I worked cause with him. You kind of had yeah. this school of players that you made yeah. several albums with. It was Rob yeah. and Joe Morris and Lightcap yeah. and Roy Campbell. So yeah. I mean, let's you know, let me talk about those a little bit. Like, what did you what yeah. did you get from Roy in particular? Cause well, Roy is Roy is you know a joy, and I miss him to this day. I just felt so close to him. I I I I uh um he he he's just uh somebody that loves the music in all its forms that, you know and and so he's very enthusiastic and um playing with him you know he he just he just loved playing so I love playing with him and, and, and everything that I did with him I learned, and when I felt like he was very simpatico, and Rob and him together were amazing, and uh, so that they played beautifully together, and um, so I feel really, you know, I I just remember him doing some really crazy stuff, you know, with me, mm-hmm. you know, some really amazingly, you know, just. Just like when I wanted to do something kind of, kind of, kind of different, and he would always be there, and he would he would be doing this stuff that was just, you know, really out there. But but, you know, that was I guess that that just shows you what a well-rounded musician he was. Yeah, that was a deep, deep musician, deep, deep in the tradition. Yeah, yeah, he knew all kinds of stuff. I mean, he could yeah. play in almost any context, you know, because he had that Lee Morgan, Freddie Hubbard thing going. Yeah. But then he could pull from like you know the the Don Cherry side of things as yeah. well, and just go exactly. as far out as he wanted. Yeah. You uh, when you were working with when you were making those records, that was around the time that Joe Joe Morris was yeah. starting up on the bass in addition to the yeah. guitar. So I mean. How would you comp- yeah. contrast or characterize that versus what you were getting from Chris? Like, what did you know? Well, how did you lock in Joe, with each of them? Joe, Joe played the notes that were just so gorgeous. So, I really feel like with Joe, Joe, you know, just played stuff that was um, melodically really interesting on the bass. Nobody played bass like him. He had his own thing. And he and but you know he didn't have a thick sound like Chris or anything you know but he he played uh, 
you know, and, and, and at times he, he, he kind of like was unsure of what to do, but I felt like he was playing some really nice things. I think Joe really created an interesting sound to the, to the music. Mm. Different, mm-hmm. different than Chris because Chris Chris was you know more in the tradition more more um, you know just sort of the traditional aspect of the bass whereas Joe was more into the African and also the just guitar influence that he brought to the bass um yeah it, it was really it was really interesting and I, I love his guitar playing as far as the way he played on Prophet Moon so th- those were good albums too with, with Joe and with, uh, Rob and me and then there was um there was some really nice things that he did with, with me and uh I haven't worked with him for quite a while. Mm. And know. what about uh, when you were working with William? I mean, what was, uh, yeah. how were you guys, well, As did you ever, you know, settle into like a traditional rhythm section no. sort of thing? I wouldn't say so. Uh, I mean, back then, uh, William, William pretty much set the, uh, the, William William pretty much set the basic um, bones of the the skeleton of what was going on. He was like in the center, and um, I was I was basically just playing off of Matthew, and so I guess I guess I never really hooked up totally with with William, but I always enjoyed it because I didn't have to. You know, he was there in the middle all the time, and so I could just play what I wanted to play. I felt so. It was, it was. Um, but I don't know how he felt. <laughs> but you know, I mean, I also do know how he felt. He, he felt like, damn man, you know, I have to do all the work or something, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that's what he felt. <laughs> I want to go backwards just a minute because something you said earlier stuck with me when you were talking about how you you know you studied at Bennington with Milford, and that was I guess in the late seventies, and so so around eighty eighty eighty, I guess you know it took me so long to tell you the truth. It, it was in um, eighty one or two, I think. Okay, see, that is even more interesting to me because the popular image of Bennington College sort of comes from Brett Ellis. And so you get this image of, like, rich, coked-up assholes partying in Vermont. So what was your experience? My experience was working in an isolated area on the north side of campus, away from all, all of the other things. I mean, I did take some classes, but I basically, um, you know, I finished up, got my undergrad, uh, my grad, my, uh, excuse me, my uh, BA there, and uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I just remember being in class, everybody was a little, quite a bit younger than me, so I took classes there, 
took a boys class there and then I studied with a visiting artist uh, that was studying that was studying with Bill Dixon and he's a, called he called himself a visiting artist he was the, very much the impresario uh, this trumpet player um, and uh, so I studied with him I worked played with him and we did trio recordings with a bass player who was a student there and um, I, I that was my first real time playing in a free jazz trio that I felt was really pretty interesting you know um, but Bill Dixon and Milford were two totally different people that kept that kept they didn't keep company with each other at all and, they, and when they did there was always a lot of friction um, Milford I basically I basically didn't have anything to do with Bennington College the students or the you know any any friendships with any student younger students there you know mm -hmm. I mean there were some younger students that tried to be friends with me but I, I just didn't feel like being friends with I mean most of the students that were studying in the black music department were basically there just to get you know to get credit in, in an exotic area or something I mean they, they weren't serious there was nobody there that was serious about really playing beyond ben Bennington College um, you know I don't think there was a drummer there that could play straight ahead stuff pretty well, you know, mm -hmm. and, but he couldn't play free music and I was playing free music in the Bill's ensembles and, you know, it, then we started to, to work on tunes and stuff and I couldn't really do that very well, but that was because everybody wanted to work on tunes rather than working in Bill's ensembles and so they, they that's what Bill decided to do later on but I was basically studying with Milford and um, you know I mean it was basically hands on he would give me stuff to work on it was basically you know left right both you know left both right and you know just rhythms were you know you learned to, to play uh sort of a, a double um, multi-directional um, with left hand, right hand, but based on, mainly based on um, sort of African, you know, patterns, one pattern, left hand doing one thing with the pack, left, right hand doing another. And so it was a way of getting, getting um, independent limbs um, because he gave you a five-four beat on the left side, on on the uh, on the hi hat, and then um, you know you'd be playing six on the uh, with your right hand, and with your left hand you'd be playing, you know, sort of like a four-four sometimes, or just playing. It was it was very very inspiring what he gave me. It really opened up my playing. And um, but but I had to study bebop. So when I was up when I was upstate, I studied bebop heavily. You know, I worked on I worked on bebop tunes 
a lot mm-hmm. and 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 worked on you know worked on Coltrane tunes a whole lot and that's where I pretty much got my ability to play with Matthew after that I'm jumping ahead but um, I I, uh, I basically I didn't have anything to do with the campus really other than just trying to get out of there with as fast as I could <laughs> basically yeah. were the, really the differences between Milford and Bill were they I mean it seems like they would probably be philosophical because Milford has all the you know, interests that he has in terms of the bodily functions of rhythm and the healing yeah. stuff and all that and Bill is very always struck me as very much more yeah. about sound and dryness yeah. you know and, and sort yes. of a you know yeah, a, you a very I mean, when I talked, well, I interviewed Cecil a while ago, and he talked about how, you know, the problem that he had with Bill basically was that Bill was, for all practical terms, an atheist or something, you know, and so he had, you know, like Cecil was trying to claim that he was like soulless in some dry New England way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, could be because, um, well, you know, Bill. Bill loved Miles Davis, and I think he got a lot of his phrasing and sound somewhat. But he was a big Miles Davis fan, and you know. Um, but you know, I, I think he had that kind of minimalism that he got from Miles. I don't know. Hmm. I just I I think he I think well he was a minimalist. Bill. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. And that's anything but what Milford was. I mean, <laughs> Milford, Milford was an all-out assault. And so um, you, you basically get two different people that were hired by the college. You know, um, uh, I would say uh, Bill worked in the dance department also you know he wrote music for dance and uh you know milford came up there for you know for two days out of the week and basically taught and played and and when he did play he basically played solos for for the the students performed and bill performed with his group and boy i mean you just couldn't find any more different groups you know and, and and um, my thing is I was heavily influenced by Bill I mean very much so and I really really respect Bill's music And but I was also heavily influenced by Milford and I really respect his music but I, I would say that my aesthetic is closer to Bill's than Milford's you know and um, so uh, I, I would I would just say Milford was my, uh, you know, he, he showed me how to play independent limbs and Bill showed me how to play with silence and really, really respect the, the, uh, the interstices of music. Mm-hmm. And those are th- those are things that are very important to me. I mean, like I, I really really find a lot of inspiration 
in, in understanding how little cracks, little little tiny little places that that you are aware of where silence can intervene. And um, I don't think Milford really had anything to do with that, but maybe, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm really. I, I didn't study with Milford once I got out of Bennington. You know, because I just didn't feel like I could really, <laughs> I could really go and get any farther with them with him than I did. But, you know. Yeah. I, yeah. When you came back to Matt's trio after several years away, were you able to kind of settle right in, or did, was there some sort of negotiation yeah. there? Because his playing has evolved a lot from the 90s yeah. to now. He's a very yeah, different yeah. player. He and, is. And Bezio's approach to the bass is different from Williams or anybody else's. Yeah. So what did you, what was your process when you came on board? Uh, my process was to be able to play on Matthew's melodies and, and play the melodies. Uh, that's something I hadn't done in the past. But um, I worked really hard at trying to do that and um, to become a positive force. And I, I have to say um, that Joe Morris played on the first record, uh, which was called Piano Vortex. And then um, Joe and me had, a, we had a kind of a conflict on tour. So it got really ugly. And um, so Joe left. <laughs> he chose to leave. And then Mike Bisio came in in 2009 and we made the record Art of the Improviser. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a uh, really positive experience for me because he was playing really full force Joe, I mean, playing full force Mike Bisio. Uh, it's the way he always plays. And um, But I was trying to play off of uh, Matt's melodies and trying to play with Matt and him together. It was really fun. I had a great time. It was, it was. See, it's interesting because I saw you guys play at the Iridium around that time, like maybe 2010, 2011. Yeah, yeah. And my impression, it seemed to me like you yeah. and Matt were not even in dialogue, really. Like you were soloing right. and he was soloing and Michael was yeah. kind of in the middle there, you know, and occasionally he yeah. would inter you know, interconnect with one or that the other be. of you. But it, was, it very much seemed like, you know, simultaneity rather than collectiveness. Yeah, okay. So. Could be. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, as I say, man, like right now, um, parenthetical, parenthetical, um, thing. I mean, I'm, 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 um, on the spectrum and it's been, it's just been a real struggle, but I, I basically feel like I'm growing, you know, each day. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's like I really enjoy playing with uh, Mike and I don't know if I was working you know with what Matthew was doing because I was pretty much playing on the moment mm -hmm. on the moment all the time that was my philosophy was to play on the moment be in the moment be, and that's what I got from Mike that you know and so 
um, it was it was kind of crazy, but uh, I thought the Art of the Improvisers, a nice record with the first, uh, and, then, and then he did a solo record at the, uh, the uh, Poisson Rouge. Which, yeah. Um, um, so that was all very, it was all very, very fun, but I, I have to say that uh, it was difficult to, because I'm a, I'm a free player, and you know Matthew didn't necessarily want that per se. He want there was some free playing, but I don't think he really wanted. He's just coming out of playing with um, beats, and um, I uh, I guess he worked with uh, Gerald a couple of records. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I can't remember, but I never liked Gerald with Matthew that much. I never felt they connected that well when I listen to them. That's just my personal opinion. You actually played with Gerald on one yeah. of the albums with uh, Evo Perlman, which is yeah, interesting. Yeah. It seems like, on paper, it seems like Evo would be a good partner for you because he's another. He's a guy who's very free, like doesn't yeah, doesn't write, think, doesn't do anything. Yeah. He just sets up and goes. Yeah, that's so, why I wanted to play with him. And you've made like yeah. 10 albums with him. So, I mean, yeah. how, does, how do you two work as, you know creatively well oh it's just been such an evolution these past years um i would say that uh i've made a lot of records with them and i can't even think of all the records that i've made but um basically with evo i would say that i felt comfortable because he's an abstract expressionist and um, he's gotten me into that he, I felt comfortable being able to express myself playing with that kind of a sensibility um, and his paintings I mean his paintings and his music and just everything about him really impresses me and, and I really feel like I want to. I really want to contribute as much as I can to what he's doing. And he plays with so many people. It's just, it's just a privilege to play with him. Uh, I, he's, he's truly great. And I love playing with him and Matthew and Matt Maneri. You know, with uh, BCO. And, yeah, it's William. another sort of whole pool of people that yeah. that Evo's working with. Yeah, but, yeah. So, but that the one record Enigma with Gerald, like I've that's the yeah. first time I've ever heard you with another drummer. So how did that? Yeah. How did that? Uh, work? Uh, it was enigmatic because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean I know I can work better now. I've had a I've had a uh, a sea change since the early part of this year it's really i mean i know that if i had to go back i could do things better than i've done in the past i know that but you know i'm a late bloomer and i'm i'm but working with that group with gerald i i, I didn't I, I just felt like it wasn't totally focused beyond but it, you know it, Evo put it out, so that's good. 
I I haven't heard it for a long time. But um, you know what I've been working on for the past four and a half years is building is building a structure around what I do so that I can express myself more rather than playing in the moment, more playing, you know, totally what I want to do, which is based on the moment, but is an extension of it. And that's where the heartbeat and the whole thing comes in. Mm-hmm. And the heart, I just realized that when I was up in Pauling, um, I was playing, studying Coltrane, and um, I just felt, kept feeling like I could hear this mantra in his playing. And, you know, and he talked so much about drones and mantras and everything. So I listened to his music so heavily that Elvin, with Elvin and I, and I just began to hear this, 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 this uh, mantra, but I couldn't, I just didn't know what to do with it because it didn't make any sense to me at times because I didn't, probably because I wasn't living in New York and working with people enough but um it it was there and so i found it later you know and it i made sense out of it and um it it fit in with music with 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 what i was doing it's a five basically it's just that a hurried four four because i'm i'm a a speed guy Mm -hmm. basically work (laughs) always always very like I just feel like you know, I my mind is everything I do is is fast in terms of what I how I hear things. I tend to hurry things, and this I I began to realize that it was it was really a five rather than a four, and it really just needed it just needed to be filled out at the end, and it would become a four. And that's how that's how I've, I've worked now, and I just feel like that's so cool. And it's just so I feel so good about it, and I know that I could play with anybody, like like uh, Gerald now, and play better. To mm. be honest, <laughs> so I, I know it's easy to say, but it's the truth. And Matthew and Matthew and uh, you know, and will will tell you that I've had a big sea change. And, is that uh, is is what you're saying about what you've been you know doing over the past few years? How does yeah. that factor into uh, Vessel in Orbit, the record that you made? Well, Vessel, Vessel in Orbit was yeah, Vessel in Orbit was just because you were working with players that are fucking amazing. Okay, that work so well together that um, that I was still playing off the moment. I, I remember. And um, I was still playing off of threes. Um, I would hear a three in the background. And I remember just working off of the threes that I heard, three, like three, two. And I would hear three, two sort of in the background. And, uh, and I would be working off of um, off of that, but just, you know, sort of focused on the moment because it would everything in the three two would focus into the moment and so that worked out really nice it was nice and slow a lot of it and it was it was um some of it was fast but a lot of it was just really elegiac and uh, you know um 
sort of slow and um but i did feel at the time like i was just being taken taken like a vessel you know and that my music was that, that the music itself was just taking me places that i'd never been before and so that's why i called it vessel in orbit mm. because it, it definitely was a more sort of open and spacious yeah. kind of record yeah. than yeah. some of your other stuff you know? yeah and it was really interesting to see that played at the vision festival that yeah. year you know yeah yeah wow that was really nice yeah it was fun yeah so now I don't I thought I heard something about this and that you had some health issues like was it before yeah, or after that record was I made? had health issues I had health issues in 2014 where I I had a nervous breakdown and I just basically couldn't function um, it was it had to do with me moving into a place a basement apartment where I was um, I had to move out of my house in Pauling, plus I had a tiny little studio in New York, and I had to move out of both places, and I was, the place I chose had to be a basement, and I, it was something that I moved into, and I just was so, like, so frightened that I wouldn't like it, and that I didn't, I was independent on my own, and I had to make decisions about what I wanted to do, and I couldn't talk to anybody about it. It was, it had like, I kept hearing noise outside and all around me and in, in the apartment next door. And I, I was just saying, why did I do this? And um, so I basically flipped out and um, uh, had to go away from the town. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was really interesting because I learned a lot about myself. I was hospitalized. Wow. And, you know, yeah. And it was heavy. What brought you back out of that? Uh, it, it was. It was basically um, that I had to. To. Uh, you know, I had to. I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do, and I had to get out of the treatment. I was in a step-down program for you know three months. And um, I was in the hospital for three months, and so it was really like six months, man. I mean, that was it was really, uh, really tough. And I, I basically just had to make a decision about, you know, what I wanted to do as far as that apartment. And so, because I bought it, and you know, I, I basically had to make a decision as to what I wanted to do, and I basically decided that I wanted to uh, live there, and I had the support of my brother, who I never really knew very well, and my family, and I never really knew my family very well, because I never get, I never kept in touch with them that well, because I had uh, all sorts of issues with them, but I, I came closer to them, and my brother helped me out with the apartment by giving me a design because he's sort of like a renaissance uh, architect he works in sales but he's he's so he sort of came up with this architectural drawing that he thought would work for me and he submitted it to an architect who lived in the building 
he saved my life basically he was amazing he got me into the hospital he he really came to came forward and it was my mother that wanted him to do it and then basically i came out a better person um I, be, I came out like knowing that i could live there knowing that i could play there with you know some uh basically some i used i used acrylic and sorber panels to surround my drums mm -hmm. and i could play there and it felt good and i there's a lot of noise in the apartment because it's a utility space that uh that has pipes all over there so in the winter there's all sorts of pipes banging and shit <laughs> you know and and it's really like there's you can hear like the water going through the pipes all the time and you can hear the pipe hitting the ceiling and you know all the shit that used to drive me crazy wouldn't didn't drive me crazy after my after this experience in the hospital did it change your approach to the to music like did it change how yeah, you thought did. about the kit everything. and how you you know how yeah. you played and stuff like yeah, that it changed it changed everything i mean it changed it changed me i said I said, you know, I'm going to be my own musician, and um, I'm going to work with people that I want to work with, um, and I'm going to try to grow as a uh, a player and be a, a leader, a true leader. In that, I I play the full sense. I play the music and the, the whole drum set all the time while I'm playing, and that I'm playing off of melodies that other people are playing and that I'm building that ability to both be a leader and play hard and free, but also play very much aware of space and sound and, um, and melody. Everything that I do is off the melody, which is just the opposite of what I used to be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I learned, I took what David gave me and I really worked at it. I mean, and that's where where I began to be able to play, you know, to fit melodies into what I was doing. It's very hard. I, I, I am on the spectrum and I, it's like I don't have a really strong, it's the spectrum did not provide me with a lot of musical um, help, except for it, it, it gave me an idea of how to, how to hear different formations and configurations. And finally, you know, you hone them down. You know, there's a saying that I learned when I was 18 in Montana that a fool, you know, can keep doing, batting his head against the wall for, you know, years and years sticking with what he does. And finally, you know, he'll become enlightened. And because I stuck with what I did, I, think I've become more and more and more of an enlightened player mm -hmm. and I stuck with I'm stubborn I'm very stubborn and I just stuck with what I but I've changed and that I can play off melodies now so um, how does that uh that manifest on your new record because it's two different bands well, yeah, so that, that, yeah that that was like um that was like um before my sea change but still um it it was um it was really good um in that i was playing off of that mantra of five that i heard and, and 
I was playing full force as far as I'm concerned. Um, I was playing, you know, very, very strong off of what I heard. And so you've got two different groups. You've got William and Rob and Matt. And we used to, we used to, we did a record together back, way back. Yeah, like 1990, but, I think. Yeah. It was, it was uh, Rob's album, Points, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it was Matt's album. Matt's but, album, right. But it was supposed to be a collaborative, and Rob and Matt did, had a disagreement about that, but so that <laughs> separate, separated them for years. But um, anyway, getting back to that album, um, you know, I just feel like uh, I, I, br I brought my whole idea of being able to come into the music wherever, whenever. Before, I used to have to calibrate, you know, how to come in off of the three. And now I'm off of the five. I just come in, just bam, like there, right there, you know. And, and so those albums, that's what those albums represent to me. They represent to me, I mean, it, the mantra itself is is so is so beautiful that you can you can you apply it in so many ways but there is there is this connection with the uh with the with the, with the jazz with the four four that i don't think is totally there in some of those records but that's okay you know i, I say i i've the sea change was, was being able to connect what i do to the four four um, and and other rhythms. So anyway, there's I I just feel really good about those records just just because I was just feeling so so completely energized by feeling like I was part of the band, really in the band and playing um, with the music, and um, it was. It was fun. I think everybody had a lot of fun on, on the first record, even William, who's very critical of me. <laughs> but, but um, you know, on on the second record, you got a totally different setup in that you got uh, Mike, who is I've I've got a I've got a since he's a full force player and I'm now a full force player and I wasn't before. It's it's like we have to work together in some way, and um, so that's interesting. Um, but uh, it, it, then you've got this beautiful connection of Robin and um, Steve. Yeah, Steve Swell. Yeah, yes, Steve Swell. Yeah. Yeah, you never worked with him before, have you? No, was that your first time. No, I, yeah. Mm, no, I did. I did a duo with him in the garden, and I did do some things with Matthew with him. There's stuff coming out. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that I've done. So yes, I had worked with him and wanted to work with him, but they just haven't come out yet. They're on the uh, the uh, you know ESP. They'll be out. Yeah. But um, as far as these records, these two doubles records set, um, they're totally different. And um, uh, one is one is kind of one is kind of smooth and. Um, you know, uh, you know, it has, it has a kind of a silky, slippery quality to it, with Matt, William, and Rob, and then the other one with Rob and 
Steve and Mike is kind of rambunctious and um, very sharp edges and uh, it's it's just uh, it's just a very different thing and, and I think I approached it a slightly hair trigger difference and it just made it made it a little different but that's okay the way it grows that's the way you grow you try new things and each one is a one is a yin and one is a yang and that's why i called it the, the tau quartets yeah quartets yes yeah. and um so yeah they're they're basically uh two different recordings that i made in the space of a month in the winter and uh, You've also um, got a, a new record out, another record out. Uh, a du this is your second duo album with Kirk Knufke. Yes. How did you yes. two connect, and what do you think is well, the key Kirk is to... Really a, Kirk is really a, interested in what I was doing, I think. Um, and he wanted to play with me. I think he heard some things. Or, so I don't know if he listened to stuff I was doing for my hospitalization, but I'm sure he did. And... and but uh, Kirk came to me and uh, wanted to play, and I loved his playing. So we worked together as a duo in, the, in my apartment for a while, just playing. And then we went into the studio, and then we went into the studio again. And when the second time we went into the studio, it really came together. So that album is called um, Fierce Silence. Right, and, um, right, and then um, Drone Dream is the new one, which is coming Dream, out yeah, on No Business. Just coming out, No Business, yeah, and they're they're different, but um, it's an unusual instrumentation. There's not that many yeah, cornet no, drums duo records no, around. There really aren't. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, um, he is a precious player. I love his playing. He's he's really develops develops things but he's a straight ahead player jazz player but yeah he, but he, yeah but he but he knows how to play like with Dominic Coleman kind of stuff and you know he knows he, he can he's, he's he's very very adept and he is very patient with playing and um, almost sometimes to a fault but he's but with me but he's very patient he develops his, his little lines and and um, you know you sort of feel like wow Kirk come on but then when you listen to it it's like really nice <laughs> so yeah you know you know it, it, he's uh, you know I like it mm. really really like really like working with him I'm going to be playing with that with the band I played at the Vision Festival with the uh, Fred Lumber, Coleman, Mike, and him in the future, and um, you know, so it, it's it that that was a it's a it, it's a nice a very nice uh, change in my in my my life playing with him, you know, and I want to continue to do it. He's, he's a really good guy. I mean, I've met, oh, I've yeah. met Kirk, and yeah. he's just a super nice guy. He seems yeah. to always be enjoying himself. And yes, he's, yeah. He's kind of like Roy in that respect. You know, yeah, he's yeah. just a, a pleasure to be around. Yeah. I mean, that's the reason I want to continue to work with him, because he's, he's just so excited about what's going on with my playing and everything. And, you know, he's always, he's always loved, loved playing.
playing. And so I can't, I love that kind of attitude. And I want to, you know, I want to definitely uh, I'll just cultivate it some more in the future. Okay, that was my conversation with Whit Dickey, and that's the end of this episode of the Burning Ambulance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if so, I hope you'll consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash burningambulance. It's just $5 a month, and it'll really help us improve the content on the website and the show, and maybe even start creating some exclusive content just for subscribers. So visit patreon.com slash burningambulance and throw us $5 a month if you can. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back for the next one. Osiris.